Hello, you're listening to the Fintech Podcast. On this week's episode, we talk to Aidan Miller, Chief Data Officer at DNB. We cover topics such as challenges in the financial sector, customer demographic data models, and what it really means to go digital. If we can get started, then if we maybe we start a little bit about, I guess, you and your role um, as Chief Digital Officer, because, you know, it's an interesting role and, and one that as I told you earlier, I'm not that familiar with because usually I speak to CPOs and CEOs. So maybe if you give me a little bit of a rundown of, of that role in particular, and I suppose how you sort of ended up in that role um, or, or why you wanted to go in that direction. The definition of a CDO, I think, is a good question because often you hear it conflicted with the chief data, digital officer, not the chief data and analytics officer. Yes, actually, I think um, that's what I said, isn't it? Chief, chief digital, yeah, but it's, it's chief yeah. data and and I I have a very strong personal opinion about this, and I think it's defendable. Um, that actually I always use these little short phrases, but going digital is not merely a thing; it's a completely different way of doing things. Um, so when people talk about their chief digital officer, if they're not data savvy or understand the importance of data in the the digital business value chain then they're going to fail. It's very easy to kind of deploy a technical solution as a front end to say that you're going digital. But unless you're dealing with the underlying data flows in those digital business value chains, it's never going to work. So I think the role of the chief data officer, to be honest, is actually to educate the organization that going digital means you've got to go down, as they say, to the core which is understanding your, understanding your data assets and actually how those data assets flow through data value chains of the business processes. Um, and that's probably the first answer to the first question. The second question that you raised is what got me into this role? It's, kind of, it's something I've been doing actually ever since I started my career, to be honest. I fell into doing forensics data analytics about 30 years ago, if that's... Uh, astonishing to you is to me what I said um, and it was all to do in that that era of actually taking large data downloads on mag tape and bringing them back to the office to do forensics analysis on it to make sure that companies that were being sold were actually viable and actually had transaction data that supported the valuations but it was a very interesting job at that time it's, it's chalk and cheese now isn't it like if you, if you uh, look 30 years ago to I guess what that sort of role was like and, and how it is now. Yeah. Completely it's, different. It is. Well, it is and it isn't, I would say. Um, I don't think it's fundamental. The, the essence of being an analytics person has not really changed, like the, the underlying data aspect. But the speed of innovation of the tool sets to analyze that data is just astonishing, actually. Um, you know, the even as a chief data and analytics officer, staying up with the new technologies that are coming on stream and the processing capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, with you know these cloud-based solutions on Amazon Web Services or Azure with Microsoft, the things that you can do today is just incredible. And when you're looking at billions of transactions, it's it was not viable when I started. 30 years ago but today it's actually relatively easy to do those kinds of analytics use cases yeah it was unimaginable i bet yeah yeah Yeah. absolutely um and i suppose to go off that um 
how how has how has your role i suppose changed because you said you say you've been at dmb for, th for three years um so i guess over that time in the past three years maybe a little bit longer how do you feel that the role has shifted slightly because i know that you, you just mentioned there th 30 years ago you know the essence is still the same isn't it um but i guess for you how do you feel that role has, has sort of transformed yeah i mean whenever i try and paint a picture i don't know if you've looked at my my career history but i i i often go into these roles i'm generally hired in by an organization to do whatever task or problem statement that they want mm -hmm. to solve it's generally a, a a change problem i would say so yeah. actually coming in and i, I from my uh, my career history i would say it's been it's going to be it's kind of been substantiated that these transformation programs generally take two to three years mm -hmm. and during that two to three year process just to answer your question directly it, it goes through quite, goes through quite an emotional change i would say so you come in yeah. you know you have a 90 day period to kind of hit the ground running and lay down what your roadmap yeah. is and then you've got like a a one-year lead time to actually demonstrate quick wins and value to credentialize yourself but in the meantime you've really got to have that long-term three-year target which actually lays the foundation and does it the right way mm -hmm. um while also keeping senior execs at the you know the ceo level happy that things are happening at the fast enough pace um and not costing too much obviously because <laughs> things yeah. don't like spend a lot of money all the time right no, but the role no. changes to, to, to from being a, I make the analogy actually to being a conductor actually. Like I, mm -hmm. I like to make the analogy to run like orchestrating a, an ensemble of players. You come in and generally the organization is making a, a terrible din. Yeah? Mm -hmm. It's like lots of people trying to do something right, but it's not very well tuned up, let's say. So it mm -hmm. sounds like an orchestra that's tuning up and is deafening. So you come in, you try and let them tune up, you let them be quiet for a minute, and actually we all discuss and align what piece of music we're gonna play and what order we're gonna play in. Mm. You enable them with um, the right tools, i.e. instruments, for them to actually be part of the orchestra. Um, and actually a lot of training, to be honest. I, what I've realized also in the last two to three years of this transformation, and I always underestimate the amount of education that's required to to um, inform people what you can and cannot do with data, because data is quite a technical topic, e even with IT people, to be honest. Um, yeah, sure. the, the quick tagline I'd like to share with you is I, it's almost now I use this tagline at DMB, we're injecting more I, i.e. information into IT because most organizations tend to have very strong technology departments as chief technology officers, CTOs, but they're not very strong on understanding the information part of technology. Hmm. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that they struggle to understand that side of it? Um, because I think, I think it's, yeah, I don't, it's a good question again. Why is, why is that? I think it's a misunderstanding. It goes back to that first, first phrase. Going digital is not merely a thing. It's a completely new way of doing things. I don't think people have understood that if you're going digital, it's not simply deploying a new app on the mobile or deploying a new web front end. No, 
you really need to dig into understanding the data flows and the information flows in those digital processes and how are they supporting customer value. And that's very, very complicated generally in large corporates. They have a lot of technical debt um, that they built over years. And it's, it's generally a mess in probably almost every organization you go to. They've got a lot of work to cleanse that and make it clean. So I think it's just a misunderstanding that actually it's not about technology anymore. It's about data and information. Hmm. So, so taking you back to 2017, then when you, you know, when you first came into DMB, how did you structure that journey? How did you, I suppose, you already mentioned there a little bit about how sort of like an orchestra, uh, hmm. seeing what needed to be fixed. But I guess in particular to DMB, what what did you sort of look at and and see? And then realize, oh, I, you know, I should change that. I should maybe change that. Or did you see 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 how it's sort of running first, or, or or did you immediately be like, well, I need to sort that straight away? What was the process in 2017 when you looked ahead yeah. at the transformation journey in front of you? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, it's all about setting expectations with execs. So let's not leap before you can even crawl and walk. Um, so it's a matter of saying, look, you know, there's a lot of value in just setting up good working practices around data governance and data practices before actually looking to exploit it or capitalize on it as part of growing the top line revenue. So I think that's the first message I sent very clearly. Um, mm -hmm. And then laid down actually a very simple three-year plan. The first leg of that plan, which was in 2018, was all about what I called using simple taglines again that was an important aspect is creating kind of simple taglines that people could connect with and remember and it was all about protect the bank 2019 was all about making it stick and 2020 which is the year we're in now is all about actually capitalizing on the new data models and frameworks we've deployed to actually generate top line revenue growth or data efficiencies in, in existing processes Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But that's been thrown out of whack now with obviously COVID nineteen. Um, no, no, it's, it's not. It's still on schedule. No, it's all on schedule. We're actually ahead of schedule. And in fact, yeah. I would even say that COVID's actually accelerated it. To be honest, really. So, so can you can you tell me about that then? So, how, in what way? So, it's obviously not disrupted because you know a lot of people that we're speaking to, it's, it's you know significantly disrupted their businesses. Um, so, it's interesting to hear that it's you know accelerated it. Um, can you tell me a little bit about you know how it's how it's accelerated um you know admits covid19 and you know i i guess you know um you know you have the infrastructure in, in place to to meet those challenges um but can you tell me a little bit about how it's i guess you know your view on it and and i suppose how it fueled the urgency as well yeah i mean it's interesting we, we we've done an, an internal assessment on this um mm -hmm. and the the bottom line of what came out of it is actually there's a realization that the consequence we've learned in the short term is that we need to be investing even more, I would say, in data and analytics because mm -hmm. it allows us to respond to these types of crises much more effectively. Mm -hmm. um, it's also exposed some of the challenges we have, which I mentioned earlier around the complexity of our existing data value chains. Mm -hmm. So it's very difficult to, for example, the governments have been, you know, we're, we're a systemic bank in Norway. We have basically over 50% of the population is banked with DMB, okay? Um, so we have intrinsic 
insights to what's going on in the economy rate based on our transactions that, that customers uh, transact with us. Yeah. Um, so having that data available and actually in a good state with good data quality checks to actually predict, most importantly, what we think is going to happen, and also to help manage credit risk, right, in relation to the whole scenario that we're in today, um, and also to give insights on, on customer behavior. So those insights have been very uh, useful for the government, for example, to plan out whether their policies that they're deploying are actually giving the effect that they want. Mm. So I yeah. suppose the bottom line I'll give you here again is it's kind of amplified the importance of data and analytics because people are, are screaming out for more data and insight about what's going on in the economy. Yeah, no, absolutely, for sure. Thank you for, for walking me through that. Uh, and also from your notes as well, I, you know, obviously I saw about, um, you know, the banks are under increased pressure and, and that stat uh, from Gartner, about 80% of existing financial services will be irrelevant in 12 years. I mean, that's, that's quite alarming figures, really, isn't it? Um, can you talk to me about those challenges? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's all in, intrinsically connected, right? Um, you know, an incumbent financial services organization, a bank, a traditional bank, they have a lot of challenges, right? So they have three vectors that are attacking them. They have new competition, right, constantly, new competition moving in to their market sector and actually unbundling their existing services and making them more efficient and more um, frictionless, as I would say, with customers. So, for example, challenger banks and fintechs are coming up with new solutions that are far more efficient to transact with customers, um, reinventing the whole experience, which customers always like, because the likes of you know, Apple, Google, and Facebook have set a very high standard, right? Mm -hmm. And banks have got a lot of catch up to do that. So that's the first challenge. The second challenge is actually connected to that. Customers have extremely high expectations now based on what the big techs and fintechs are doing. You know, if you want to stay relevant in their daily life, their daily digital life, as I would call it, then you've got to do a big lift to take your old ways of working, which may even be on mainframe, for example, um, and make them more modernized and more mm -hmm. near real time. So that's the second challenge. And the third challenge, which is the technical debt that these banks have built up over many, many years. And I don't think there are many banks that could deny that. I think they all have it. It's just intrinsic to the way that they've grown. Um, the regulators are actually enforcing banks to clean up. Yeah. So if you look at things like GDPR, you know, they're now saying you need to understand where all of the customer-related data is across your organization. And when you have over, let's say, 10,000 data silos, it's quite a complex process, right? So there's yeah. a big, heavy uh, enforcement from the regulator to get the banks to clean up their technical debt. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and another um, key area that you, that you discussed before, which I, th I felt was quite interesting, was, was around culture. And obviously you know, the importance of that in, you know, in any transformation journey. Um, about, you know, you know, the importance of recruiting and retaining the right staff. Um, how, yeah. just, just how important is that, you know, that you do, you know, bring in people that want to have a proactive attitude to, to any new tech? Oh, it's super important. I think it's a very good question. As I mentioned, I think earlier, you know, data and analytics is a, 
is actually a relatively new concept, I think, for most organizations. They don't, they're learning about it. They've gone from the tech era and now they're moving into the information era. Yeah. So having people incumbent in the organization that actually understand the importance of data and the, the flow of information across your digital processes, it's a new way of thinking, right? So there aren't that many people that get it, to be honest. Um, and as part of this three-year journey, it's been a, a lot of education exercise and actually reskilling and upskilling people. I think people, once they get it, it's relatively quick for them to understand because they see it happening in front of their eyes. Mm-hmm. To teach them and educate them and bring them up to the right level to be able to, to enable them, let's say, to exploit data and use it in the right way, that requires a lot of time and effort. And to your point, finding those resources either internally within the existing organization or within the marketplace is quite hard. So yeah. what we've done, which I think is pretty smart, is we developed our own reskill and upskill training programs to take people that are passionate about the topic and want to learn. So we, we re-educated people. And how has that process been so far? Has everyone been on board with that? Did it take, was there a bit of a teething process um, or was it all quite straightforward from the beginning? No, I mean, I think it's probably symptomatic of the culture actually in DMB, which is a Norwegian Nordic type society. So they're very open-minded, very hungry to learn. So there's no politics involved. There is a, to a degree in every organization, but when it comes to being open-minded about, oh, maybe we should try and learn about this new yeah. subject area. I think they've been very open-armed uh, about that, which is good. Um, so I think it's been relatively easy. I think it would be a lot harder in some other culture uh, around the world, but I mm. think DMB's really embraced it, to be honest. It's been good. Good, good. Um, and in terms of some of the biggest data-driven projects that you've been able to you know, introduce so far, can you talk me through some of those? Yeah, I mean, we, I kind of outlined these in the first interview I did with yourself. So this is actually a good, a good segue to talk about the next chapter of the journey. So the preamble, I mean, as part of that, that kind of making it stick the second year and the third year, which is, is grow. Mm-hmm. You know, we initiated um, quite a number of use cases to um, demonstrate the value, the top line business value or, or to the business about what we could do with data and analytics. Um, and they centered around uh, three or four key topics. Mm-hmm. Actually, do you know, it's interesting. Banks are really not that complicated, right? They basically take deposits, right? They loan those deposits to people that need money and they manage risk. And underlying that, they have a payments transaction platform that allow those processes to execute. So it's very simple. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, banks make it very, very complicated for themselves. I don't know why <laughs> but they do. Um, so thinking about how we came up with the use case, they're relatively easy, really. So what we do is we look at the transaction data because you've got to be mindful that banks have a gold mine, to be honest, of transaction data. Mm-hmm. Okay. We actually probably know more than, for example, Google about what customers are spending their money on, for example. Yeah, yeah of course. So they yeah. may know. Yeah, I mean, they, they, I mean, it's probably exaggerating. A little bit. They probably do know a lot more. But if you think about what these big techs are doing, fundamentally what they're doing is they're building a connected ecosystem of data sets or transaction sets so that they can get a very detailed insight into what you as an individual are doing and what your preferences are. Yeah? 
Mm-hmm. Actually, can I have a segue to this so I can explain yeah. when, before I get to these cases? If you look at someone like Amazon, for example, mm-hmm. you know, Amazon, if you look at your, your normal daily life, what do you do? You, you wake up in the morning, you have your breakfast, you get ready, you go to work on transport, you go to, you're at work, you work, you come back on yeah. transport, you may do some activity before you kind of settle for the evening, you do some uh, relaxation, and then you go to bed and you start the cycle again, right? That daily life, but yeah, we're very simple animals, to be honest. And I yeah. think we forget that sometimes. So if you think about what Amazon's doing, they're they're building an ecosystem that that spans that whole daily life. So mm-hmm. they know what your preferences are on TV because they have Amazon Prime. Right? They know what you buy online. So they know what your your buying preferences are. Mm-hmm. To the even to the d- degree that they know what your eating preferences are, because now they own Whole Foods. They didn't buy Whole Foods because they wanted to get into grocery shopping. They want to know what you eat. Yeah, right? that's crazy. Isn't it? So they have this massive insight about you, isn't it? They probably know more about you and I than we know about ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> and they're using those transaction sets in a connected ecosystem to get more relevant services to you, which is good. Mm-hmm. So that's a segue to saying what we're doing at DMB. We're trying to do the same thing, but clearly to a lesser degree because we're a bank and we're we also want to be ethical. Um, I think that's a very important point I'd like to bring out in this conversation. Everything we do at DMB is not just compliant, but it's ethically compliant. Mm-hmm. You know, you may be able to bend the rules legally to do something, but you know, if you shouldn't do it, don't do it. If you feel like it's not right, then you don't do it. Yeah, no, because no. we're meant to be a trusted partner of you know. Financial custodian, which a bank is, you cannot break that trust. So we're very, very strong on that. I personally am. If you how do you juggle that? How 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 difficult? How far? How, maybe a better question would be how fine of a line is that um, between you know being ethical and also being not successful because obviously you are anyway. But where is that line, and and how do you measure that? I don't think it is a fine line, to be honest. I'm I'm very clear about that in my mind. I often have. I'm very clear to people that ask me that in the bank, for example. Mm-hmm. I'm saying it's actually very simple. Right? If you're not adding value to the customer, do not do it. Mm. Yeah, I okay. mean, it's, you, if you're doing it to benefit the bank, that's the wrong reason. If it's adding value or utility to the customer, then of course you should consider doing it. Yeah, yeah, it's as simple as that, black and white. Yeah, I mean, bottom line is if it's good for the bank, it's probably not Win-win it should be. It should be good for the customer and good for the bank. Customers will pay for value. That's what I always say. Mutually beneficial, yeah. No, it's important. Sorry, was there anything else to touch on on the, on the project side of things? Yeah, um, you know, let, me, let me dig into them because there's some very specific outcomes from this. So yeah. that whole context we talked about, and it's imperative to DMB, as we just mentioned, that we've got to stay mm-hmm. relevant to our customers in their daily digital life. It's super important. That's why we exist. So what we've been doing is looking at our transaction data, clearly to a lesser degree than Amazon has, but we have yeah. a lot of data, and we analyze that data in a compliant and ethical way, just to stress that. Um, um, and then we can get an insight about what customers are doing. And, and there are remarkable things that we see. We see revenue leakage, for example. It's like DMB customers who have products, financial products, with other banks. It's like, why is that? Is it because our product's not very good? Is it not priced correctly? All those things. So what we do is we analyze that data and we say, okay, 
we identified 4 billion knock, right, of profit before tax estimated. Mm -hmm. That's 400 million US dollars that our DMB customers spend on loans, insurance, and credit cards with other banks. Uh, right? yeah. So what we do is we say, why is that? You know, maybe our service offering is not as competitive, so we have to figure out how we, we price our products. So there's a whole uh, project on pricing models so that we can be a little bit more flexible and also making sure we're still compliant. But, you know, you can price things to, to a level where it's still interesting for the customer and the bank, but taking into consideration the credit risk that particular customer may have, for example. And the fourth one, which I think is a very interesting one as well, sorry, the third one is reduced churn. So <laughs> you're going to laugh at this. At DMB, we have a customer recovery center. Right. And to your point about what I did when I first arrived, my first 90 days, I went around the business areas and really tried to understand what some of the challenges were. So I went to the customer recovery center, which is in the north of Norway, in Trondheim. Um, and I sat on these calls with these guys, and it's just remarkable what they do. So these are customers at DMB that have left the bank, right? So we get a notification, they've closed their account, and they phone them up, right? Cold call them, they call them up, and they say, look, we're very sad that you've closed your account. Can we entice you to come back? Okay. And what do they use to entice them back? And, and this is the thing. So they somehow managed to get some of these customers back, even though they've already closed their account. So it's just a remarkable job that they do. So I said, look, this is crazy. We should be able to predict, you know, 90 days in advance of a customer closing their account that they're going to close their account because we can look at the volume of transactions going through their account, what their behaviors are online, all that good stuff. So we built yeah. this model, and it's in place today. So we reduce churn rate. Not only do we identify customers now before they leave, we call them up, okay, and we say, you know, we want to make sure you're happy and, and you know, if there's anything we can do. So we, we stop them from churning or leaving, and we cross-sell them four new products. Crazy. Is the, is the key thing that if they're using their account less, is that how you know and pre can preempt that they're going to leave? Is it that they're using their account less, there's less money in that account, for example, that's being transferred elsewhere? What are the key signs? Oh, there, there's, it's quite a sophisticated model. So they use it's an advanced analytics technique. So you can take mm -hmm. all this transaction data, billions of transactions, and then what the machine learning tool sets can do is they, they can predict with a very high level of accuracy what signal patterns you would see in an account that predict closure. Wow. So the AI or machine learning, as I would call it, it's not really an AI, the machine learning models can actually look for patterns that you would never have thought would predict someone to close their account. That's incredible. That is and when was that introduced? Sorry, was that something that you helped um, yep. introduce when you, when you first yep. started as one of the first things you did? Yes, so it took us about a year to get it in, but it's up and running and it's it's very it's, it's working. I mean, like I said, we're not only are we stopping customers leaving before they close their account, but we're selling them four new products. <laughs> Great. <laughs> that's, that's pretty incredible. It is pretty incredible. Is there any other sort of data projects like that or is, or is that yeah. really the, um, the main one that you're running at the moment? Well, that, that's one that's gone live. The pricing models, as I mentioned, is a very interesting one. Um, mm -hmm. So we can actually price products like personal loans to a much better level. 
so that we can make it more interesting for the customer while we also still manage credit risk. That's driving a lot of value. Yeah. Uh, so we were giving value to our customers while still staying profitable. The revenue leakage one I mentioned at the beginning is huge. I mean, 400 million US dollars. So we use that to actually predict or send targeted offers over the digital channels to these customers to say, look, you know, we have a better, we have a, a really good offering here that's better than the one you have today, maybe on personal loans, mortgages or insurance or credit cards. But the best one I'm keeping till last, this is a really cool one. So this is a very advanced new data product that we've deployed and we've actually sold it to a large corporate or a number of large corporates. And it goes back to these, uh, the fact that we have huge volumes of transactions, right? And again, I'm going to say it again, we do it in a compliant way. So only if the customers uh, consent to us using their data, we use it and we aggregate it. So it's actually anonymous. But what we can do with our large corporate businesses that bank with us and our, sub, our small medium enterprises is that we can tell them more about their customers than they know about the customer because we know the demographic of that customer that goes to the store. So for example, let's say you go to a big uh, sportswear company. So we have all of the uh, Visa card transaction payments that go through the point of sale terminal. Um, they get processed through our payments platform. We take those transactions. We know which customers it relates to, right? We can aggregate that data and tell the large corporate what kind of demographic they should be targeting, right? Because we know which demographic spends the most money there. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like a, a large corporate market benchmarking tool. So we can tell them insights about their customer base that they would never have known before. Yeah. Or even where should you build a new outlet? You know, because we can tell that the demographic in this area is going to be more tightly aligned to your product set. That's so important, isn't it? Because otherwise, you you, you really are doing it blind. And yep. you know, years years ago, and that was that was just the norm, wasn't it? But by having all this data at your fingertips to to make these sort of informed decisions, yes, it's a, it's a game changer, isn't it? It is. And you 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 nice summary you just said there. We can make it more informed. Okay, um, moving on to um, partnerships. Um, I want to talk about, as uh, a few, I think, uh, D4T4, uh, Calibra, uh, and Infosys. Um, can you talk to me about, I suppose, the importance of, of mutually beneficial and sustained partnerships, and I guess what you look for in, in those sort of partnerships as well? Yeah, I think this is super important. Um, and maybe I'd position this, actually, so you understand why I think it's very important. It's a thing I learned. Um, if you're working a large guerrilla bank like JP Morgan or Bank of America, you have a lot of buying power, right? So you have a lot of situational authority, let's say, over your service providers. They probably bully them, to be honest. Um, I don't agree with that in principle. So what I subscribe to is building reciprocal relationships, right? So it's a reciprocal value proposition here. So I partnered with uh, those three vendors that you mentioned, they're key vendors. So D4T4 has been instrumental to us at DMB because we're a relatively small bank. They've helped us um, reconnect with our customers. And the way that the, we, they've enabled us to do that is they have a product called Celebrus that allows us to, again, in a compliant way, capture real-time digital interaction on our channels, whether it's mobile or web. 
in near real time, we can process that and actually, again, reconnect with our customers and understand what they're looking for on digital channels. Because you've got to remember, when you go digital, as I said, it's not merely a thing. It's a completely new way of doing things. Customers are talking to us every single second of the day. And if you don't have a tool like Celebris, you can't hear what they're, set, what they're asking for. Mm -hmm. Right? So this tool set has allowed us to reconnect, gain an insight of what the customer's looking for, so we actually can respond in a relevant way back to them on the digital channel. So can I give you an example? So a customer may yeah. go online, and they may go to search for a mortgage product. They'll click on all the things, and we'll be able to see what they're clicking on and looking at the pricing mm -hmm. scales that they move up and down to see what the mortgage valuation would be or the mortgage annual payment would be. And then they may drop out, and then we don't hear from them. They don't press the like the close button, right? Mm -hmm. um, so what we do is we we get that insight. So we actually we can clearly, in a non big brother way, sensitively come back to them and say, look, you know, we understand you may be looking for a mortgage. Is there anything we can do to help you? So you're actually being able to reconnect on those channels. Um, on emphasis, they have been instrumental from a different perspective. They're our strategic data partner. And they basically provide a much more globalized perspective that a relatively small Norwegian bank wouldn't be able to see. So they give us an outside-in perspective about what's going on. And that's very important because things are innovating so fast in the world mm -hmm. that even for myself, I can't keep up with it. They give us a perspective and keep our kind of finger on the pulse about getting ahead of what's coming up. Um, and then Calibra, which is probably the third major strategic partner. Again, they have a tool set. And again, we partner with them on a reciprocal basis. So I do a lot to help them and they help me back. Um, and what I do with them is, or they've been helping us do is set up and define a, basically a crowdsourcing platform that is business-led, because that's an important aspect. We cannot make this a technology-driven effort. It's got to be business-led in relation to data, mm -hmm. where business users can actually go in and understand and document the data landscape that they have in their business processes. Um, so they get a little bit more tied into this whole more I in IT. It should be more I in business, actually, I would say, to your point about being informed about what they're doing and how it can affect their business. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, and I guess what, what kind of skill set do these partners need to have? So when seeking to, I suppose, establish one of these relationships, what what do you what what do they need to have? What do, how important is it to have that mutual trust and, oh. and and know that you know you can trust them to deliver what what you expect? It's super important. I mean, I'm very passionate, as you can probably tell. I talk a lot about things I love. Uh, and I hope you feel the energy from me. But when I'm talking to a partner, they've got to be as enthusiastic about the topic as I am. I mean, yeah. I, I love to go into a, uh, a discussion with one of our partners, and they all are as passionate as I am, if not more, which fuels me. Mm. Um, if, they're, if they're passionate and they want to solve problems, uh, to your point, they have to be, definitely have to be trusted. Mm. Uh, but most of all, they have to be a good thought partner. Yeah, yeah, no, that's key, isn't it? Um, and it's, it's, you know, because if you want to have a long-term sort of relationship with them, um, they need to have all of those things. Otherwise, it's, you know, if they're not got the um, the vision that it could last a long time, then, yeah. you know, I've had, when I've asked that question previously, um, a lot of people say that it's almost like 
you know, a relationship. Um, yes, so, it is. You know, <laughs> would, it is that something you'd agree with? It, absolutely. God, any organization that does not treat their vendor as a strategic yeah. partner, you pick the wrong vendor, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's just an interesting analogy, though, isn't it? Um, yeah, yeah. And yeah. um, so moving on to, you know, this is this is a, a good question that you, you obviously um, provided me with, but what would you do differently if you're given the opportunity to start over again? Um, and I know that <laughs> it might be a different a different answer for depending on the day of the week. Um, but um, you know, what what do you feel that you would do differently? Um, you know, if if, I, if we had to go back to the start. Yeah, I don't know, but it's, you know the reason why I gave you the questions because I thought it was a brilliant question that I got it asked. It really myself. is. But I hate. <laughs> I don't know what to say. I think I, I don't know what I would say because it's not because I think I've done everything perfectly because I clearly haven't. Um. I think the bottom line on a reflection of the last two and a half years would be, I think I've underestimated the need to communicate um, enough. I think I've communicated a lot because I said culture transformation was probably the number one priority, but I didn't realize or I underestimated the amount of time and effort and the number of times I'd have to communicate. Mm -hmm. I think if you understand a topic, right, then you kind of assume everyone else does. And that's not fair. That was a big mistake to assume that people would get it quickly because mm -hmm. it's quite a technical topic. And also remembering that, that even though you may have come up with a good way to explain it, you always have to make sure it's relevant to the individual you're talking to because people think differently. So you always have to reassess how you should communicate the, the point across in a way that they can receive it accept it and understand it right and there's no one way that suits all is there um you know there's, you've got to have a different approach to depending on who you're talking to yes and you know what it's exhausting i never realized how tiring it would be but it's super important it's probably the most important thing um that you must do in any transformation work is communicate communicate and communicate and then do it more 10 times more <laughs> yeah it takes it out of you you have a lot of early nights then <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's 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 exciting as well, but it also gets a bit kind of um, tedious to a degree. Something that's maybe a point. It should not become tedious. You've just got to keep reinventing how you say it, so it's still interesting, right? Of course, of course. Um, and you know, obviously, transformation. You know, the journey is never finished, is it? Um, no. I suppose. What, what, what do you feel like the next few years of your journey will look like? Um, and I know that you don't have a crystal ball. Um, but what, 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 I suppose, what, what do you anticipate it to look like, and, and what do you what, what do you envision it will as well? That's a good good question as well. I I, I would actually say it's for a change agent, and I'm probably being a bit bold to say I'm a change agent, but I think that's what I've been trying to do. Um, I think a change agent's role is lifespan is normally two to three years so and the reason why i say that is because you need to inject someone else's energy and passion to take it for the next three years because you if you're doing change agency properly you get very worn out i would say uh after two three years of passion and emotion being pushed into the organization to get traction right so really? to answer the question about the next leg i think it's it's going to be a very exciting journey because the foundations are there and it's all about capitalizing on the tool sets and the data sets we've exposed 
and the potential and the ideas of what you could use it for. Um, and I think that requires probably probably a new injection of leadership, to be honest. So, so it'll be, be another challenge for you then to, to move on and take that transformation journey elsewhere? Probably. I mean, again, I'm being very honest. If I stop adding value, if there's a diminishing utility, right? If yeah. I'm not able to add as much value as I did two years ago, it's time for someone else to come in and, and add that extra value, right? Add, add another voice, yeah. 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 That's very honest. I mean, yeah, I, it's, it's very interesting. I think everyone should think like that. I mean, if you're in a job, I hate to say it. I mean, mm. I meet some people who've been in their job for like 20, 30 years. I, I think I often sit there and I think that's, I, I'm respectful of that, but. Is there nothing people, else? I'm sure that, yeah, that there is, that there's, there's plenty out there, isn't there? Even yeah, if it's people should job. always be challenging themselves to say, have I done everything that I can in this job? And if I have, maybe someone else should come and come up with a new way of doing it, for example, Take it, make it better. Yeah. So this is a good question for you then. So in terms of comfort zones, is that not in your vocabulary? Is that is that not is that not something that you can even consider? Is am I comfortable leaving? No, as, as, it, as in like getting through the comfort because obviously there's no such thing as you know you, you don't want to rest on your laurels. No, you always want no. to seek that next challenge, that next yes. you know transformation journey. You know you're not yes. happy just to stay as stay no. as you are. No, I, I am. It's a very important point. There's no way that I can sit here and just turn the handle. It's just it's not get your dressing way. gown, get your slippers on. Isn't it's just yes. not not no. for you. Not going to happen. I can't. How can I go to work and I'd be I'd go mental. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's very interesting, and actually, you know, to have this honesty and to and to have this discussion because it's 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 you know it, it this is everyone goes through. You know a certain level of comfort zone or or they're very content with how things are but you know sometimes you know you need that change and you want to you know get at them as, as it were you know for want of a better word so um yeah, I, it's, I think, it's very interesting i think sure i think it's super important as one key takeaway if you're if you're to your point resting on your laurels or comfortable in your role mm -hmm. it's time to change yeah right? otherwise yeah. you're not innovating <laughs> you're not learning anything right and actually maybe that's the bottom line if I stop learning, then I might as well just pack it all up and get in a coffin, right? <laughs> That'll be a nice pull quote, Aidan. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's excellent. I, uh, I think we've got more than enough there. Um, are you happy that we covered all the key areas? I think so, absolutely. Thank you very much for your time. It's been a, uh, a pleasure to talk to you. Um, I hope you have a great rest of your day. Yeah, and you, Sean. And uh, please reach out to me if you need anything. Yeah, just call me up. Will do. Thanks, Aidan. Cheers. Bye, Bye then. Bye.